This podcast is produced and managed by Kangaroo Fern Media Lab, Australia's independent video and podcast company. We do the podcasting hard bits so you don't have to. We make podcasts easy. Book a call at www.kangaroofern.com. www.kangaroofern.com. This podcast is produced and managed by Kangaroo Fern Media Lab, Australia's independent video and podcast company. We do the podcasting hard bits so you don't have to. We make podcasts easy. Book a call at www.kangaroofern.com. www.kangaroofern.com. A Gorilla Podcast Syndicate Production. Samutsari Conversation with Mimi to connect with other women who may need someone to talk to around everyday life issues and challenges from managing career and household to inner productivity, relationships, and other hot topics. Samutsari Conversation with Mimi Okay, hello and welcome everyone to our program Samutsari Conversations with Mimi. This is a podcast featuring hot topics and other topics of interest for both women and men alike. And uh, occasionally we feature guests who share their passion and commitment to their profession or talents. Here at Samutsari, we share stories to inspire you, stories from ordinary people who make extraordinary things and make a difference in this world. In today's episode, we will have a guest, another very beautiful woman guest. (laughs) And um, I would like to say a few words or things about her before I formally give her the microphone. She has 14 years of experience in early childhood education, and she's a mentor with a passion for teaching and learning, and she's an advocate of play as a context of learning. I will ask her a little bit about the concept of play. But for now, I'd like everybody to uh, welcome my guest, Raquel Chan. Hi, Raquel, and welcome to Samutsari. Hello, Mimi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for taking time to join me in this episode because I'm just a newbie in this world of podcasting. And as a newbie, of course, I would like to really extend my reach. So I don't want to be just talking um, talking about myself <laughs> or talking on my own. It's always <laughs> nice to have a conversation with um, somebody else who you can bounce off your ideas with. And um, I've invited you to guest speak or join me in this um, particular podcast because I know that your field of expertise or this industry or sector you are in is a sector I think that's really important and a sector that will never ever die because obviously there are always kids that need to be educated and you've chosen to be in this field. So before we dive deeper into this field, I want to ask you first, what made you become an early childhood educator? What was the um, kind of like the aha moment for you that you said, okay, I'll be 
in this um, area as a career? Well, um, when I was little, I used to always play teacher. So I'd be the teacher and I'd tear up my classroom and things like that. But somewhere along the line, I, I ended up working in marketing in the Philippines. And then I, I migrated to Australia. And then I had a baby. I had a baby boy who is now 16 years old. And um, I was so out of my depth. I was like, I don't know what to do with this little baby. And then I realized as I was watching him grow the first few months, I realized that I was really interested into how he was thinking and learning. And there was so many inter interesting things that he was showing me. And then I decided, you know, this is the right time for me to change careers. I'm in a new country. You know, I've just had a baby and I can use this experience to really learn how to teach children. And that's where it all started. But I've always wanted to teach. I just didn't know what field I was going to teach until I had my own child. Right. So are you telling me that you actually changed careers when you moved to Australia? So this is where you studied early childhood education and you learned about the different techniques. I suppose that's that our difference because my educational training is teaching more adults. So I've yeah. been um, uh, in a university, so adult education is more my thing. <laughs> I don't know yeah. much about teaching little kids. So, um, but let's go back to your study. You talked about yeah. you are an advocate of context of play. So that means that might have been one of the early things that um, was emphasized in your course in early childhood education. Yeah. So um, yeah. can you explain, I don't want to be too technical, but can you yeah. explain to our viewers what is this concept of play? And I'm thinking play is already ordinary and part of a child's life. So why does yeah. it have to be so much ingrained or embedded into the educational setup for early childhood learning? So when, when I studied my diploma of children's services, this was um, to, um, we were at the cusp. So we were changing, we were moving into a different, um, you would say pedagogical training where we yeah. used to be looking at children's development. So it was a developmental framework where we have to, you know, sort of put them in boxes where, you know, um, the trajectory is that they, they will move from one development to the next based on their age, which is a linear trajectory. Yeah. But when I was studying for my diploma, the first year I learned all about developmental framework, which is about, you know, um, cognitive, physical, and things like that. And then on my second year, I was lucky enough that because of the shift in the whole early childhood industry, we were then introduced to the pedagogy of play, which is such a big um, difference from Piaget's developmental theory. So it talks about children as, as already, you know, they already come with lots of things they already know things and all you've got to do is enhance that so and it also talks about the cultural aspect and the social aspects of learning that children doesn't just learn on their own they're not just intrinsically motivated they're also um motivated by their interactions with peers interactions with adults and and when i was uh when i went into the field of early childhood I, I was given, I, I had two choices. I either had to go developmentally, 
developmental framework or I had to embrace play. And I was, I had, I really had close affinity with play. And then later on, this was strengthened by um, the development of the earliest learning framework, which, which works around the premise that children are inherently learning all the time in the context that we don't have to give them pen and paper to learn. There's other ways of learning and doing. Mm -hmm. And it also talks about different ways that children learn, that they don't just learn, you know, by rote learning. They learn by manipulating. They learn through their senses and things like mm. that. So I think that's where I was passionate about. Right. So um, just for the benefit of our viewers, they don't know. So I'm going to reveal this. <laughs> I'm very lucky fortunate and very very appreciative of the fact that when i launched my children's book i launched it in your school and um <laughs> that is oh my gosh that was a big um, big uh, what do you call that a big deal for me because i never thought that i would become um, um uh, an early childhood uh writer <laughs> a children's author and yeah. um i really want to thank you because uh, for our, the benefit of our viewers um, Raquel really paved the way for me to be able to interact with the kids. That's that's the best way of launching the children's book, yeah. which is to read your book to the kids. So, what's the point of you know writing a children's book if you don't have actual kids to to uh, benefit from your work? So, really, that will be etched in my significant milestone in my career as a writer. And very recently, I I um, launched just um, very recently I launched them. Um, a mother's component, a mother's book, a book for moms, especially for young moms. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now, back to the show. This is not for seasoned moms like us, but for <laughs> the younger ones who are just starting off as a parent and um, might need a little bit more help and tips on how to manage the different aspects of their lives. So you are with kids every day of uh, five yeah. days of your seven days. Um, yeah. I really salute all the early childhood educators because of your patience and dedication and the sense of pride that you, mm -hmm. you have every day dealing with the challenges of teaching those kids. They have so much energy. How do you yeah. cope with all those different activities from sitting down, learning, doing outside work, having excursions? Do you have time for anything else in the classroom? Um, I think what, one of the things that I'm always, um, really, I'm, I'm always conscious about when I'm teaching is that it needs to be fun. It needs to be fun. The kids has to wanna come into the classroom and have fun. And to have fun, you really have to be fun with them. So one of the things that I like when I step into the classroom is that I let go of my adult expectations. So I, I don't put on, I do put on an adult hat as a teacher, but then I try to always be in the, in the present, like, you know, what they're doing. I try to see it in, in the way that they're seeing things in the world. And I think that's one of the most important thing about um, the way that I teach is that if it's not fun, then it's not going to be, you know, they won't be able to learn as much as they would when, when they're not having fun. So if they're having yeah. fun, then that's the, the battle one. That's the first battle one. And I guess it comes with experience. I remember 
the, my first year of teaching. Um, I was, I was my first year of kinder teaching. Um, I stepped on another role, which was uh, vacated by another kinder teacher. And for the first, for the first six months of my, my teaching, I felt like I wasn't doing, I wasn't having fun. And I was just, you know, like, and then I, I looked deeper into myself and I said, there's got to be a better way of doing this because I know I love teaching, but there's got to be a better way of coming into the classroom and not wanting to just run, you know, like run away because there's too many children, there's, mm. too, you know, they're too noisy, there's too much energy. And I guess from experience, and one of the other things that I, from, from early on, I knew exactly what kind of teacher I want to be and I knew exactly what kind of pedagogy I want to embrace in the classroom. And that hasn't changed at all. So when you step into my classroom, there's sort of like a, an emotional and a psychological environment that is created when I'm mm. there. That's, that's different from any other classroom. I right. Guess. But um, when you finish at the end of the day, do you still think about your kids when you're at home? Do you still bring <laughs> some of the challenges that, uh, that you face during I the do. day? Or you, do you know how to like kind of close the doors completely and when you're at home, you're not anymore thinking about them? I guess it's hard, um, but I want to hear it from your direct experience. Unfortunately, and I, I think every teacher will agree with me, um, you never switch off. Like I... Sometimes I dream of the, <laughs> sometimes I dream of the challenging kids and in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and I think this is a good strategy or this is a good activity. Or when I'm out and about, when I'm like, I love op shopping. So when I'm out and about doing op shops, if I see something, I'll go, this is a good activity to do with the kids. Mm. So all, I never switch up. And I think that's a bad thing, but I'm, I'm still learning and it's 14 years and I still haven't learned how effectively to switch off. <laughs> mm, I think that's the, our difference because I would be a little bit more emotional than you are probably. I probably wouldn't oh. be able to just not switch off. I'll, I'll absorb all the things yeah. that are happening in the school. And I'm probably so emotional that I'm, I'm going to get too attached to the kids. So mm. um, I don't know how, how you feel about those kids. Do you feel like you have 34 additional children? <laughs> Yeah, I do. Is I, that how it I, is? I really do. Yeah, I really do. And at the end of the year, and, and all parents could attest to this, every graduation, I try not to cry because, you know, it's like being in their lives for that one year and then you have to hand them over to the next lot. And it's, yeah, it's a really hard feeling to let go of those children because you see, you literally see them grow right before your eyes. And it's, it's a privilege to have that, but then it's really hard to let go of that. Mm. So, but uh, yeah, but then you, after you've let go, then you're looking forward to another lot of kids that are coming the following year. And then that keeps you going. It's, it makes it easier to let go of the old kids because you're looking forward to the new ones that you're going to see grow for the next year. Right. So there's like a cycle. So you don't feel yeah. too sad because you'll be excited yeah. with the... Yeah coming yeah. batch um what about the relationship between teachers and parents within the early childhood um mm -hmm. space do you find the parents uh, as a challenge or do you find that you have an ally in them or do you work close with parents i don't know how it is but i remember in the philippines when my kids were really really young the parents are somewhat in the way of learning because they 
kind of insist on certain things to happen in the classroom. The teachers have to always negotiate that, hey, we are the teachers, we know what we're doing. So trust us with your kid. I don't know. Yeah. What's the situation here? Do you find that the parents are more uh, autonomous or do you find uh, yourself working closely with them? Or what are the challenges if there are any? It's, it's funny that you ask that question because when I think about what are the challenges for me teaching children, it's always parents, not children. <laughs> so I, I, I find parent. children challenging, but I have the skills to deal with those challenges. Whereas with parents, it's because they're adults and, you know, they have adult ex expectations. And sometimes it's really difficult because I'm an advocate for their child. And of course, they are an advocate for their child as well. But the way they see their child is different from the way I see their child. That's right. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at an educational perspective and they're probably looking at a more personal perspective. And in that respect, sometimes it's really difficult to to balance those expectations. So like there would be parents, that, especially where I'm working, where it's it's a bit of an affluent area. Mm. So we have Helbury right next to us. So really that's, you know, parents are expecting, expecting their children to know their ABCs and things like that. And I always have to, and I always tell them that, you know, learning ABCs is rote learning. You, you get that at school, but they don't, they won't be able to practice the skills of dispositions like being curious and things like that at school. They need to practice that in my classroom so that when they go to school, they don't just absorb the learning. They actually ask questions mm -hmm. and they think of other ways of, of learning that just, you know, listening to the teacher They you know, they might be able to see it in a different perspective. And that's what I'm trying to always tell the, the parents. And I remember, my first few years of using play as my pedagogy, parents were always saying, what are you teaching our kids? We don't see them learning this, you know, but at the end of the year, I'm always hitting those targets, those, you know, those targets, expectations at school, they can, they can hold the pencils correctly, they can write their names, but we're, they're not seeing it as, as a traditional classroom setup. Mm. It was really difficult the first two years, but I guess further on in my career, I realized that the children are my ultimate result. If they're learning, then the parents are happy. If they're not learning, then the parents are not happy. So now it's kind of a medium. It's a balanced way. They ask questions, but at the same time, they, they respect me. They respect my, my skills of teaching. So. I sort of like I'm I'm convincing them that I am teaching their children. It's, it's <laughs> Not just playing every day. Their traditional <laughs> way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So this is a bit controversial. I don't know how much of this happens in early childhood, but certainly when you go uh, primary schooling and maybe middle schooling, there's this idea about homework. So that's the controversy oh. around here. How much yeah. homework? should we give our kids and do we give our kids homework does that happen also in early childhood do you expect some take-home tasks that the kids um do and then come back to school armed with you know what outputs they have done during the day during the night or during the past week like what you hear so far make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now um how is homework 
as um is that an issue in 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 uh, early childhood education um i don't think it is because homework is seen as a traditional you know a, a traditional issue for yeah. school for academic learning and in australia especially in victoria early childhood is not the start of your traditional academic learning so it's mm -hmm. It's a pathway, but it's not, you know, they're not, there's not a lot of expectations for them to, at the end, for teachers per se, to follow a certain curriculum every term. So it's, it's very flexible. Our early years learning framework is quite flexible in the way that, you know, we can choose the subjects that we, we explore, we base it on the children's interests. So it's, I guess homework would be like, you know, when we're learning about autumn, we ask them to collect leaves and stuff like that. Or if we're learning about recycling, we, we invite the parents to, you know, recycle, you know, find some things at home that, we can, that they can bring to the classroom and we can use them for sorting and things like that. That's the limitations of the, and I won't even call it homework. I'll probably call, call it more um, parent input and, you know, um, from home to, to kinder, like that's the connection from home to kinder is that, you know, they, they share their experiences from home and then we enhance it when they come to the kinder environment. So it's not really per se as homework. Mm. But finding the links in terms yes. of what yes. they do at home and what they yes. do in yes. school. Yeah, that's yes. good. Um, another question that I have is when the students are ready to move up and then leave your school, to move to the next stage of their education uh, or their life as a child, if you, mm -hmm. it, 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 they. So, how much of that preparation are you doing to enable them to adjust to the next level when they leave okay, your school? Yeah. yeah um. At, it just really it depends. We normally ask them, um, are we going? Because every school has their different expectations. So if if it's, say for example, Hailbury would have a different expectation for, for a, um, as opposed to a public school. So Hailbury would probably expect them to, you know, know all the letters of the alphabet, write their names, spell some words and things like that. Whereas in a public school, they take them where they are at developmentally. So what we, to, uh, globally in the classroom, what we want them to, the skills and dispositions that we want them to have going on to school is that are they able to listen to instructions? Are they able to understand that there is an expectation in the environment where at times they will have to sit together in a group, but at times they will have to go and choose their own activities. So expectations like that, or that there's rules and behavior limits in the classroom, because in the school setting, it will have the same sort of things you know and right. you know how do you deal with social issues like um friendship issues disputes and things like that so you would you you'd probably think you know we already know this but kids don't know it they don't know how to navigate conflicts so instead of instead of um navigating conflict maturely they would hit or kick or do things like that then those are the things that we teach them we give them those tools that you don't have to hit, you don't have to kick. You use your words or, you know, you, you take other children's perspective. And I think globally those are, it's more dispositions rather than skills that we would like them to take 
moving forward because in any learning environment they will be able to use those dispositions of curiosity we can we want to know we want to see if the kids are curious are they asking questions because when they go to school they'll have to ask questions yes. they have to listen to their teachers yeah they'll have to understand that i will i will be using these tools what are you know and if i don't know the answer what do i do do i just sit in a corner and cry or do i ask my peers do i ask a teacher do i look in the environment and see if there's a book that i can use say for example a child says i want i want to draw a horse but i can't draw a horse it just doesn't stop there what we do is we say well how do we draw a horse what does horse look like mm -hmm. and then eventually they can have those skills themselves so right. that there's no adult that would guide them it will be mm -hmm. them that say hmm, where can i find the resources to deal with these questions that I have with them. And yeah. they, don't, they don't teach that at school. Yeah. So I'm thinking now that do you find yourself in a situation or has any of your co-teachers find themselves in, in a situation where they, they have already established certain uh, things in the class or they've mm -hmm. taught the students about those disposition and some of the life, life skills, fundamental life skills, and then you find yourself so the kids leave school, go back to their homes, and then the following day or the following week, you find yourself, hmm, have this child undone? Or did they undo? Or did they delete? Or did they modify some of the things that they learned? And it becomes mm -hmm. even more difficult to correct those things, or it yeah. becomes more challenging to manage any sort of conflict or difference in the way that you have taught them. Have you ever had those um, instances? Um only a few and I would say only because they, they have some um, learning challenges but for children that are um, that are within the norm you know it's it's easy for them to understand that as long as you've got a consistent expectation rules and behavior limits in the classroom it will never change like you know and they know that that they know when they come in parents would say you know they don't even pack up at home. But here, as soon as they hear the pack up song, they're like little, you know, they're like little workers packing up and things like that. It's not that you're, you're training their mind. It's just that it's instinctive for them because they understand that this auditory cue means this is a time for me to pack up. So yeah. you, you take away the command of saying, Let, it's time to pack up. So there's only the sound that they can hear and they associate that sound with with packing up or they associate that sound with i have to look at where that sound is so i have to stop 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 talking stop playing and things like it's it takes a while to get those behaviors in place and it stays that way as long as the environment is consistent in um implementing those expectations limitations and rules but sometimes children with other learning challenges normally as you say they would go home then they come back and they forget that oops, mm. this is the learning expectations and then you'll have to start all over again yeah so how do you handle kids in a given classroom so the learning uh, the kids with some learning difficulties or the more challenging ones are they mixed up with the yeah. kind of regular kids yeah. so there's no difference in the way you approach the lessons and the activities so um, we have what we call differentiation of learning. So that, that happens in the school curriculum as well, but it's more 
um, they, they're more uh, individualized lessons, whereas ours would say, for example, we're learning about um, sorting, sorting by color. So instead of asking them to sort, you'll, you'll give them provocation. So you'll have um, mop, um, you know, those colored stones, red, blue, and yellow, say, for example, your primary colors. And then instead of telling them, let's sort all the reds, let's sort all the blue, you just provide the materials for them and you give them like little receptacles or little, you know, little containers. Yeah. And then they will then approach that task based on what they already know. Some would count, some would sort, others would just line them up. So yeah. that's where your differentiation comes from. You have the same activity, but that activity is very open-ended so that any child can come in and you can observe what the child is bringing to this activity because some would some are ready to count. So they would be counting the, the, the gemstones. Others are just in the sorting stage. So they will be sorting. While others where you know there's at the lowest uh, conceptual understanding, what they're gonna do is they're just gonna line them all up. Or if they're artistic, they will make something out of it. So right. although you put an expectation in the task you then observe what the children bring to the task so that you know where they are at at the moment. So the ones that are counting, you'd probably plan further on with counting activities. The ones that are sorting, you'll probably sort, you'll use sorting with different attributes. Whereas mm -hmm. the ones that are right, like on the basic conceptual level, you'll probably have to increase their conceptual understanding more. So with with children with learning challenges, the, I think the most important thing is that we look at what their strengths are and from there let use those, like we use the strengths to then deal with the challenges that they have. So at the moment, for example, at the moment I have this boy that um, is really curious about our learning environment and he likes to, you know, he likes new things. He when there's a new activity, he likes to go there. So we use that strength to then um, overcome some of his challenges like when he's, um, when he's allowed to choose the play spaces that he wants to go to or when he's, when he's trying to be social with other children, then it becomes a problem because he can't take perspective. He has to have a, a, an adult with him to Role model, role model sharing and turn taking. So instead of um, increasing those opportunities where he's, he's allowed on his own to join other children's play, we then make the environment a little bit more novel all the time. So there's always new activities, new, new resources that we put out so that then we take on his interest of, he's always curious to know what's this, you know, how can I do this new activity? So then we're capturing his interest longer and longer, and there's only little chances for him to then um, be wandering around the classroom or, you know, making decisions for himself or I have to go to this group. But then when he goes to that group, he, he's not able to then look at other children's perspective and then that creates chaos and, mm. you know, they start fighting and things like that. Right. Okay. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. Okay. So I, it's very interesting how we look at the, the kids, but I want to move on to um, 
the part of the conversation where we talk about the adults in the room, so the teachers. Yeah. <laughs> um, <sighs> very, very briefly, what could you say or see as the yeah. attribute or attributes of a person that would adequately and comfortably fit into the role of an early childhood educator? Because this obviously is not for everyone. So what is the, yeah. the set of skills or soft or hard skills or personal attributes yeah. do you need to have yeah. to succeed in this um, area? Yeah. You definitely need to have a positive disposition, you know, uh, because when you're, when, you, when you're with kids, like you, you've got to be able to join in the fun. And if you can't let go of your adulthood, you won't be able to then get onto their level because already they see teachers as, you know, the one who dictates everything. So then that becomes, you know, the power, the, the power balance between that is that they, if, if I see you as the one holding the power, then I'm forever um, challenging the limits of, of, of your power over me. Whereas if you come in as a peer, or as someone that's not enforcing the rules, but you know, giving them the opportunity to think for themselves. If the rules are, you know, if the rules are meant to be followed, then you know, it becomes the teaching becomes easier. The the part where um, I think most of the early childhood teachers that I know that are not um, efficient in their job is the ones that always want to have the power in the classroom. You know, they always want to be the one to dictate what the child, the child are go going to be doing. So you, you've got to have to have that expectation that children are agentic as they are. And you've got to trust them that they can understand that they're able to think for themselves. If you always have that idea that, you know, I will be the one controlling everything, then that's, you know, that the battle will always be a battle. Yeah. Whereas if you say, mm -hmm. you know, Let's embrace the children as, you know, they have their own learning. They understand what they want to learn. Let's ask them questions. You've got to be more open to that. And I think a disposition where you come in as the authority doesn't really work well yeah. for early childhood. I mean, in my, in my case, certainly, I've never come into the classroom and positioned myself as, you've got to listen to me because I'm the teacher, you know? And it's always worked for me because... When you give them, the, you know, when I ask them, when they're climbing higher than they should be climbing, and I, I don't say, don't climb, I say, is that safe? Then that makes them think, oh, hang on, is it safe? Then yeah. that gives them an opportunity <laughs> to say to themselves, no, it's not safe, I'm going to climb down. So yeah. there's a difference when you're approaching yeah. them. From it's the perspective. Yeah, it's a perspective. Yeah. So um, yeah. th that's very enlightening because I think at this stage, I'm still the parent. <laughs> the parent. Yeah, and it's kind of difficult. Yeah, it is. Difficult. I'm a parent too. And I, I parent like a Filipino. So mm. <laughs> really. So you when you tiger moms, <laughs> tiger moms at home, but you're as gentle as a lamb when you're in the class. I'm, 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 actually not gentle i'm i'm very firm but i'm fun firm i don't understand how i do it yeah yeah i understand yeah. because these kids are very intelligent they can pick up your negative energy and they, they can do, pick up yeah. your positivity and they just react yeah. to how you yeah. approach them yeah yeah uh, so a, a teacher who enters the career as an early childhood educator what is the career progression looking like 
So if you've been here for 14 years, yeah. is there like like a corporate ladder, so to speak, in the field of early childhood education? Do, do you guys have some sort of hierarchy? Like if you worked in, like you said, you were previously in the corporate world, obviously yeah. you would like to reach the whatever highest yeah. position yeah. you can have. Is it the mm -hmm. same in the early childhood education space? So if you work in, if just for the early childhood profession, when you, you can be an early childhood teacher, and then when you when you want to go up a bit, you can be a preschool field officer, or um, in the family daycare setting, you can handle a couple of daycare family daycares. So you can be like a you can be a mentor. So at the moment, I am a mentor and an early childhood teacher in my setting. So I mentor. The other, the other educators in the room that have lower qualifications than me. And of course, because I've got set for in teacher, teaching and assessment, I can work in TAFE. I can, I can teach diploma and cert certificate of early childhood services. So that's probably the progression. If you work in a long daycare setting, you'd probably be, uh, you can be a, a director. So you can go in being a director, but I've, oh, a couple of years ago, I've been asked to be director, but that's not really where my passion lies. So I don't like admin and regulations and things like that. So I think I'm always, with, with me personally, my profession will always be anchored on early childhood. So it could be teaching TAFE, you know, um, training students in year 11 and 12 more likely if i if i get my secondary teaching degree then it's always but it's always going to be early childhood mm, i don't that, want that has always adults. been in your heart <laughs> yes <laughs> always be yeah. a part of you yeah yeah this is great because um you know a lot of the young kids right now meaning those that are going to finish year 12 or those yeah. who are thinking about what could my future career career be like uh, it's always good to have a glimpse of uh, people's different professions. Like, obviously, we are talking about kids and and, and teaching yeah. and childhood because, like I said, it's a it's a field that will never ever go away. Parents mm -hmm. will need support and education for their kids. Teachers will always have a place, just like nurses will always have a place in society. Yeah. You get you know, people will get sick. Hospitals mm -hmm. will need. Um, and we see that now in COVID. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So um, I, I think you are in the right place. You, you are kind of uh, secure in the sense that you know you're making a difference in your microscope, <laughs> in your little yes. world, in your yes. classroom. But it, it, the, the, the future of the kid always starts with what they learn from early childhood. So definitely mm. you're building the blocks foundational blocks to enable them to succeed in the future. So I really also salute early childhood educators for the work that you do. It's not easy to look after 20 or more kids yeah. in a class every yeah. day. It's not for and the faint-hearted, maybe. Yes, it's not for the faint-hearted. You're like brain surgeons. It's not for the faint-hearted. Um, let's change the pace a little bit because um, I don't know if I've told you, and earlier in my own career, I used to be working in a university radio station. So I'm a script writer, I'm a producer, I'm an anchor, I'm, I'm all sorts of things to um, the station. And I've collected a number of emails that I've received that I've just let it, you know, sit there because I didn't know what to do with it when I 
when I uh, finished my work um, at the university in the Philippines. So now I'm kind of reviving some of these letters and I, I wouldn't like it if you can help me um, sort it out. So obviously these are emails of um, uh, some years ago, but the challenges that are presented in these emails are still the same. So maybe we can advise the people that are currently in a similar situation on what they want oh. to do. So let's see whether your your <laughs> advising skills oh. as an option of your teaching skills for work. So uh, what I've done is some of these are written in Filipino. So what I've done is just to translate them into English. So let's yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll read it and and we'll start um, dissecting this and um, sorting it out. Yeah. So dear That's Mimi, please keep my identity by calling me Ashley. So I'm an office worker for three years and have found good office mates to work with. However, there is this girl who just brings negative energy every time she enters the room or is in our company. She likes to make herself feel superior among everyone else. I really don't want to be with her, but I notice that she seems to trust me more than the rest of the people in the group. I do not know whether to tell her or not about what other people say about her. So I'm stressed out and sometimes I don't want to go to work anymore because I don't want to see this person. What do you think should I do? There you go. I don't know whether you have experienced something similar in your past. Um, what, what, can we, what can we advise people like Ashley who, who have been yeah. or are in a similar situation at the moment? Yeah. Well, I've actually experienced that quite recently. Um, with the person that I'm working with, a new person that I'm working with. And for the first instinct for me was to really critically reflect on why I don't like this person. Like, why, why does she bring out the negative feelings in me? And then when I started unpacking it, I, I felt like there was, there was an attribute of her that doesn't sit well with me. And then I started asking the people that works around, that works with us, whether this was just me personally yes. feeling that, or yeah. whether they can feel that, that particular disposition that she has that doesn't sit well with me. And it, 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 you know, in my questioning the other people around us that works with us, it just so happens that they were all feeling the same way. So then I can safely say to myself that, this is not just me being biased to that person. There's this particular um, attitude that she has that doesn't sit well with all of us. And so what I did was um, I then asked our boss to sit down together and then just address the issues that we're dealing with in the classroom. So as team members, so we, we sort of talked about the 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 particular trait that she has that really challenges us to work with her. So I, I, I sort of went about it the admin way, if you know what I'm, you know, I didn't confront her. I didn't, um, you know, bad-mouthed her against my other team members. Yeah. I, I sort of made it like a professional meeting where we address the issue. And I think if you're dealing with it in a work environment, that should always be your first point of call is to address it in a professional manner and to just hone in on that particular trait that makes it difficult for you to be in the workplace. 
Yeah. So are you saying that um, in a nutshell, for people like Ashley who are in a similar situation where there's this challenging behavior, we're not mm -hmm. saying this person is a difficult person to work with, but it's, it's a behavior that is not just isolated and other mm -hmm. people are also feeling the mm -hmm. same way. Um, yeah. Negotiate a time with your one-up manager yeah. or your boss yeah. to mm -hmm. be your advocate and maybe through a dialogue just like what you did in, in yeah. your office, Maybe uh, looking at that from a semi-objective to a very objective point of view, rather than attack that person, is the yeah. way to go. Yeah. Yeah. But I if the, mm. yeah, yeah. And I think if you look at it from you know productivity in the workplace, then that becomes a, a workplace issue rather than a personal issue. Yes. Which sometimes yeah, is easier to deal with that, rather than someone saying to you, "You you're not a good person" in a personal manner. But right. if you say it in a professional way, linking it to what's happening in the workplace, then it becomes more of a sub objective issue rather than a subjective issue. Yeah. So, um, the like you said, do it the admin way or the more professional way would probably be the easier way to get around that. Well, that's a very good advice. I love that advice. So, um, anybody who's experiencing certain issues or if you have questions, and you want me to address those questions, um, please feel free to um, send me an email. My email is mimi at dinosocial.com. Raquel, I wish to thank you for spending your time uh, with me in this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, please do come back because there are obviously other topics that we can talk about. So I just need to adjust your schedule because I know how, how tiring it could be. So maybe on another day off, uh, that you have yeah. we can plan yeah, on another podcast episode so um yeah. before i totally close can you say um anything or any last few words or things about early childhood that you'd like to share to um, the viewers and, and listeners yeah um first of all thank you for inviting me to chat it was a really interesting chat and i really enjoyed it and i i guess what um i would like to say to parents, to teachers, to parents of difficult children, to parents of challenging children that, you know, um, we, we just always have to be in the moment with kids, just always be in the moment, see the world through their eyes. And I That's guess right. when you see the world through their eyes, then you learn a lot. And it's, you're always going to be learning with kids, you know, because they teach us so many lessons. And every day when I work with, with kids, I end up going home being enhanced as an adult they teach me so much more than i teach them and that's my take on early childhood wow how inspiring so um how i wish i could still give birth to more babies but <laughs> that's impossible at this stage in uh, in our lives however we've uh, adopted a, another bunny so um <laughs> our, our dipper now has a little brother <laughs> called charlie oh. So um, thank you again, Raquel, and for our viewers and listeners, if you have any stories or topics that you wish to feature in the show, please reach out to me. Um, I would like to remind everyone that Samut Sari is a member of the Gorilla Podcast Syndicate. And um, obviously, if you want to connect further, I have my Twitter. Please search my name, Mimi Laurelia. I have my YouTube channel. You can reach out to me or by by visiting my Facebook page. So thank you, Raquel, and thank you everyone for uh, spending time with us. 
Until the next episode of Samutsari. Bye! Bye! If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted in Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. And if you want to know more, check out gorillapodcast.com.ph. A Gorilla Podcast Syndicate Production. We are Independent Podcast Network. We are Guerrilla Podcast Syndicate. Would you like to hear your brand while supporting quality podcasts? Contact us now at advertise at gorillapodcastsyndicate.com. Are you ready to finally start your own podcast? Maybe you already have one, but need a podcast manager to help you level up. We're here for either. Book a call at www.kangroofern.com www.kangaroofern.com